Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for October 24th through 30th, 2022. This is covering Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3, 33 through 34, 36 through 37, and 47. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hello, Scriptures! Hooray! Good to see you! And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 46 minutes, 36 seconds. And what would that be daily? 6 minutes, 39 seconds. Definitely doable. And if you're feeling ambitious and you want to read the whole book of Ezekiel, and we recommend you do, it will take you 4 hours, 25 minutes, 42 seconds, or... 37 minutes, 57 seconds every day for a week. So a little bit more of a challenge. That's right. It's longer than we're used to, but still very doable. Here we've got time codes if you want to go section by section. Otherwise, buckle up and we'll talk about it all together. Now, in the last couple of prophetic books, we saw Isaiah warn of the destruction of Jerusalem more than a hundred years before it happened. Then we studied Jeremiah who not only warned the people of Judah of Jerusalem's destruction due to their wickedness, but had to live through the actual fulfillment of that prophecy. When the Jews were taken captive into Babylon, they were permitted to live in communities that allowed them to maintain their cultural and religious identity, and God continued to call prophets to serve the people. The seminary manual helps us with this introduction. It says, Ezekiel was a priest who was among the Jewish captives carried away to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar in approximately 597 BC. As an aside, remember that we talked about two times when the Babylonians carried away captives out of Jerusalem. This is in reference to the first one. Back to the quote. According to the account in 2 Kings 24, 14 through 16, the Babylonians took captive mostly the chief men of the land at that time. Therefore, it is possible that Ezekiel came from a prominent and influential family. Ezekiel prophesied and delivered the Lord's words to the Jewish exiles in Babylon at about the same time that Jeremiah was prophesying in Judah and Daniel was prophesying in the Babylonian court. And it should be remembered that Lehi was prophesying around this time too. Exactly right. Despite being set at a time when Jerusalem was being destroyed, The book of Ezekiel is full of hope. The prophet Ezekiel saw beyond the tragedies of his era to a future time of renewal when the Lord would gather his people and give them a new heart and a new spirit and help them live his laws, as we see in Ezekiel 36. So let's start it out in Ezekiel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kabar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now the vision described in this first chapter, as well as other chapters, could be difficult to understand. The full meaning of it has not yet been revealed. There's a favorite quote of mine from Joseph Smith. He says, quote, I make this broad declaration that whenever God gives a vision of an image or beast or figure of any kind, he always holds himself responsible to give a revelation or interpretation of the meaning thereof. Otherwise, 
we are not responsible or accountable for our belief in it, end quote. That's good to know. So what follows in verses 4 through 25 is a vision in which Ezekiel described four heavenly creatures and their manner of movement. He also saw four wheels that moved with the creatures. And as the old gospel song goes, Now Ezekiel saw the wheel of turn way up in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel of rolling way in the middle of the air. Ah, the charioteers. Great stuff. (laughs) Now, even if we don't know the full meaning, there are some symbolic images that we may recognize from our study this year and last year. Let's start by looking at a few. In Ezekiel chapter 1, let's take a look in verse 4. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. And let's take a look in verse 13. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures and the fire was bright and out of the fire went forth lightning. Now the Institute Manual gives us this clarification. These figures, it says, are used throughout the scriptures in association with the glory, power, and majesty of God's presence or that of his messengers. On a slide here, I'll put some scripture references where we can see cloud and fire, as well as brightness, color of amber, lamps, and lightning. You can see they're used throughout the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Going on in verse 5, Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and every one had four faces, and every one had four wings. Now, these wings, as we talked about last year when we studied Doctrine and Covenants section 77, are a representation of power to move, to act, etc. You can see Doctrine and Covenants 77 verse 4 specifically. Skipping to verse 10, As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. The Institute Manual gives us this insight. The Apostle John had a similar vision. The Prophet Joseph explained that the four beasts in John's vision were representative of classes of beings. See Doctrine and Covenants 77 verse 3. The faces of the creatures in Ezekiel's vision seems to represent the same thing. The following interpretation from an ancient Jewish commentary is in harmony with that view. Quote, Man is exalted among creatures. The eagle is exalted among birds. The ox is exalted among domestic animals. The lion is exalted among wild beasts. And all of them have received dominion, and greatness has been given them. Yet they are stationed below the chariot of the Holy One. End quote. Ezekiel saw that the throne of God was above the creatures. That placement represents his having dominion over all living things, though he provides the means for all his creations, both human and animal, to enter into eternal glory, each in their appropriate order. That is a really beautiful thing to consider in this vision. But notice, too, that in the Midrash that the Institute Manual quoted, it describes God upon a chariot. 
This is one interpretation of the wheels mentioned in verses 15 through 21. The New Oxford Annotated Bible offers this insight. The appearance of the wheels in Babylonia means that the cosmic throne of God has limitless omnidirectional mobility and is not tied down to earthly Jerusalem, which is about to be judged and destroyed. See, both the wheels and the animal imagery harken back to the temple and the ark, the presence of God in his house in Jerusalem. This is imagery his listeners would understand. This message was very important because in the ancient world, gods were localized. They were only the gods of a specific area. That's one reason why the Israelite God being called the God of the whole earth, like Isaiah says in 54, 5, is so significant. But Israel, in their wicked state, may have forgotten that. Can you imagine how crushed and defeated they must have felt with this limited view of their God? That they were cast out of the land of their God and that his house was destroyed. How could they worship their God now? If that is where they were spiritually, this vision would have been incredibly important to them. Ezekiel teaches them that their God has wheels, a chariot. Using temple imagery, the people could see that the God of Israel is not just the God of Jerusalem. He is everywhere, the creator of the heavens and of the earth and Lord of all. Look at these verses through that lens. Starting in verse 26, And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell upon my face." And I heard a voice of one that spake. You know, it's interesting that Ezekiel mentions the color of amber in verse 27 and earlier. Do you remember last year when we studied the Doctrine and Covenants, section 110? This was the vision of the Lord at the Kirtland Temple on April 3rd, 1836, and it would follow with the arrival of Moses and Elijah. Doctrine and Covenants 110 verse 2 reads, we saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold in color like amber. It's interesting to note the consistencies sometimes with these prophetic visions of Ezekiel and John the Revelator and others. It's interesting. Absolutely. It might be interesting to note, too, I had read some scholars that were talking about the challenge of translating that image, that color of amber. And some seem to think that it's in reference to molten metal, which also brings some great imagery of purification. Look for the words and phrases Ezekiel used to describe the Lord and the throne he was sitting on. Can you feel that Ezekiel was having a challenge finding the words to express something so transcendent? But we can see that God, in glory indescribable, is above all. He is not diminished by the Babylonian victory, 
and his people can still repent and call upon him. And that brings us to Ezekiel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. Now look at footnote A. The expression, Son of man, used in Ezekiel, refers only to this prophet. As a Hebrew idiom, it means simply human. It is not to be confused with the title, Son of Man, with capital S and capital M, which refers to Christ. Going on in verse 2. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me and set me upon my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. Notice the importance of having the Spirit with us to understand God's words, like what happened in verse 2. Right. Going on in verse 3. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious." Wow. Notice the choice is still there for the people of Judah to hear or forbear. Either way, God will send his prophet even to a rebellious house, and they will know that a prophet has been among them. Now, in verses 9 and 10, the Lord gave Ezekiel a roll of a book, as it says in verse 9, which was a scroll with writing on both the front and the back. This scroll contained the words the Lord wanted Ezekiel to speak to Israel, which included lamentations and mourning and woe for their rebelliousness, as it says in verse 10. Let's jump now to Ezekiel chapter 3 and look for what the Lord had Ezekiel do with this scroll, starting in verse 1. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. So what great imagery that Ezekiel would eat the words of the Lord. When we eat something, it becomes a part of us. That's why we're commanded to feast on the word of God. But notice that the words were sweet, even though they contained lamentations and mourning and woe. This is very similar to the experience of a contemporary of Ezekiel, Lehi. He saw in vision a book and was told to consume it, in this case by reading it. It told of the abominations and destructions of Jerusalem, and yet Lehi proclaimed, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. I think it is fair to say that both prophets saw, in these punishments and warnings, God's great work. 
They saw with an eternal perspective, and that's a good reminder for all of us. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord compares a prophet's mission as a watchman on the tower. Verse 17, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, and give them warning from me. From the October 1998 General Conference, then-Elder Henry B. Eyring told us, quote, Because the Lord is kind, he calls servants to warn people of danger. That call to warn is made harder and more important by the fact that the warnings of most worth are about dangers that people don't yet think are real, end quote. Such a good point, and this is a major responsibility. And the Lord gave Ezekiel warnings about the consequences if he failed to warn the people by calling them to repentance. Let's keep going in verse 18. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness, and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned. Also, thou hast delivered thy soul. In verses 22 through 27, the Lord promised to help Ezekiel know when he should teach the people and what he should say to them. The Lord instructed Ezekiel to tell the people he would prophesy regardless of whether they listened to his message. Hmm. And it's important to remember that. In chapters 4 through 24, Ezekiel prophesies of the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering and gathering of Israel. We've seen this before, but don't forget that there is purpose in what the Lord is doing. Let's look for how Jesus Christ helps us strengthen our relationships with him. Let's take a look at Ezekiel chapter 6. Here the Lord describes the destruction that will come upon the people, but the Lord will find purpose in this desolation. Starting in verse 6. In all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate, and your idols may be broken and cease, and your images may be cut down, and your works may be abolished. And the slain shall fall in the midst of you, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. But there is hope. Continuing in verse 8, Yet will I leave a remnant, that ye may have some that shall escape the sword among the nations, when ye shall be scattered through the countries. And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations, whither they shall be carried captives, because I am broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me and with their eyes which go a-whoring after their idols. And they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, and that I have not said in vain that I would do this evil unto them. 
Are you watching a theme develop here in these chapters? One, the destruction. The purpose of the destruction? That they may know that I am the Lord. And then he's going to leave a remnant that will remember him among the nations. So that, in verse 10, they shall know that I am the Lord. He continues to declare that there is purpose in all that he does to redeem his people. Let's jump to chapter 12. Look for these phrases throughout the chapter. Let me just point out a few of them. In verse 15, And they shall know that I am the Lord, when I shall scatter them among the nations and disperse them. And then in 16, They shall know that I am the Lord. And you can read in verse 16 why, talking about the sword and pestilence. And then when it continues to talk about the Lord's work among the people and their destruction and consequences in verse 20, the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste and the land shall be desolate and ye shall know that I am the Lord. This is so important. Let's jump to chapter 16 in verse 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Skipping to verse 62, And I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. So, we have destruction, so that they'll know that he is the Lord. He has a preservation of a remnant, so they would know that he is the Lord. There's a deliverance, there's a reestablishing of an everlasting covenant. All of these things to help them know that he is the Lord. Do you see this pattern? punishment, deliverance, blessings, all this so they will know he is the Lord. Ezekiel 14, 11 sums it up quite nicely. It says that the house of Israel may go no more astray from me, neither be polluted any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, saith the Lord God. Remember that this is his work and glory to save and redeem us, and he's very good at it. In fact, as Elder Kieran pointed out in our last general conference, he's perfect at it. Nice. There's a favorite section of mine in Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel is explaining to the people that when someone who has been righteous turns to wickedness, their former righteousness does not cancel out or save them from their current wickedness. They are being wicked and will be punished or chastised accordingly. He calls out a common complaint of the people and discusses it. Let's start in verse 25. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and dieth in them, For his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, The way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, Are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? I love that. That's so good. Wow. It's often like a small child. We're quick to accuse something as being unequal or unfair, (laughs) merely because it's not the outcome we wanted. Right. 
It's an all-too-common cry today, and Ezekiel will bring this up later again in his writing. But might this be something that we have thought sometimes, or have ever said? Lord, your ways are not equal? I love how Ezekiel spells out very clearly God's mercy and plan. It's very simple. If you're righteous and you turn to wickedness, you shall die, spiritually speaking. If you're wicked and turn to righteousness, you shall live. It's not as hard as we sometimes make it. Good point. Now, Ezekiel chapter 25 through 32, Ezekiel prophesied of the destruction of wicked nations that surrounded Israel. So that brings us to chapter 33. In the first nine verses, Jesus Christ reiterated that the role of a prophet is similar to the role of a watchman. A watchman is responsible to warn people of unforeseen danger. Let's take a look in verse 10. Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus ye speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? So good. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you remember when Moses pleaded with the people to choose Choose life? life? (laughs) Yep. Now, in the next few verses, the Lord gave two examples to help the Israelites understand the importance of turning from their sins and living righteously. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Therefore, thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trust to his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousnesses shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. Notice the phrase, in the day. Our current choices and spiritual condition are more important to the Lord than our past choices and spiritual condition. Right. Whether righteous or wicked. Right. But what about the wicked who turn away from their sins? Verse 14. And again, when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die. If he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right, if the wicked restore the pledge, give again that he had robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned unto him. He hath done that which is lawful and right. He shall surely live." So look at the difference between the way of the people and the Lord's way. Going on in verse 17. Yet the children of thy people say, the way of the Lord is not equal. (laughs) Remember that? Nice. But as for them, their way is not equal. When the righteous turneth from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, he shall even die thereby. But if the wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, He shall live thereby. 
Yet ye say, The way of the Lord is not equal. O ye house of Israel, I will judge you every one after his ways. It might be a good summary of this concept to include this quote from Elder Dallin H. Oaks from the October 2000 General Conference. We've used it before and we love it. Sure do. He says, quote, The final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. Close quote. Now, in the remaining verses of chapter 33, Ezekiel learned that Jerusalem had been destroyed. Remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He was of the first group that went into Babylon. Ezekiel prophesied that those who remained in or moved into the land of Israel and rejoiced in the destruction of Jerusalem would also be destroyed. The Lord also told Ezekiel that the Israelites hear thy words, but they do them not, as it says in verse 32. And that brings us to Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel, that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away. Neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. And they were scattered, because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Therefore, ye shepherds, Hear the word of the Lord. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Yikes, that is rough. What's nice, though, is, even after these accusations of their selfishness, there is a perfect shepherd. What do you see about Christ in these coming verses? Let's start in verse 11. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people, and gather them from the countries, and will bring them to their own land, and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture, 
and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. Did you notice the traits of the divine shepherd? How he gathers his people and gives them security and their own land and nourishment and rest and healing? And what about those that glut themselves? He describes them in 16 as the fat and the strong. Earlier, I think he's referring to those same shepherds that fed themselves and did not take care of the flock. Can you see now why we would want to follow him, this shepherd? Hmm. In the remaining verses of chapter 34, Ezekiel prophesied that the Lord would deliver his people from their oppressors. This prophecy also refers to the time when the Lord will come to the earth in the latter days and gather the lost sheep of Israel through covenants. They will live with him in safety, never to be scattered again. And that brings us to Ezekiel chapter 35. In this chapter and in the first part of chapter 36, after Jerusalem was destroyed and many of the Jews were taken captive to Babylon, the people of Edom, a neighboring nation of Israel and Judah, remember to the south, that's the land that Esau inherited, the people of Edom planned to take over the land that was now left desolate. Jehovah promised that because the people of Edom rejoiced in the destruction of Israel, they would also be destroyed and their land would be left desolate. In chapter 36, starting at verse 8, the Lord then promised that he would bless the land to be fruitful and would gather all of Israel to rejoice in it. This prophecy, like the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34, refers to Ezekiel's day as well as to the last days, that prophetic dualism that we talked about in Isaiah. Yeah, that's important to remember. Let's take a look at a few of the verses in chapter 36. Let's look for what the Lord will do for those who follow him. Starting in verse 24, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments, and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. In the October 2007 General Conference, Elder David A. Bednar told us, quote, To have our hearts changed by the Holy Spirit such that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually, as did King Benjamin's people is the covenant responsibility we have accepted. This mighty change is not simply the result of working harder or developing greater individual discipline. Rather, it is the consequence of a fundamental change in our desires, our motives, 
and our natures made possible through the atonement of Christ the Lord. Our spiritual purpose is to overcome both sin and the desire to sin, both the taint and the tyranny of sin, end quote. I think it's so great that he emphasizes how this isn't something we do just by individual self-discipline. There is a reason why we have access to the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't try to conquer those things on your own. Because you can't. Right. And that brings us to Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, I can't read this next chapter without getting a little tune stuck in my head. (laughs) It goes a little something like this. Ezekiel connected them dry bones. Ezekiel connected them dry bones. Ezekiel connected them dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. Ah, the Delta Rhythm Boys. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Starting in verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Can you picture the vision? Those very dry bones had been there a long time. There is no restoration for them. But as we proceed in the vision, what do we learn about God's ability to restore us physically and spiritually? Let's keep going in verse 3. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Can you imagine this scene? It not only evokes the idea of a physical resurrection, but if you think of the symbolism in these visions, have you ever felt dry or lifeless? And yet, what begins the process of coming to life for these bones? The Lord's command to prophesy unto these bones, hearing the word of the Lord is what begins to bring life into us, and not just to us. Remember how important it is to share the gospel, even in small ways. That's what helps gather Israel. It puts flesh on our bones. It brings us to life. And that way we'll know that he is the Lord. Going on in verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet, 
an exceeding great army. This is again a resurrection and restoration. It can be symbolic and it can be literal. If you think of it symbolically, what an amazing way to gather the army of the Lord to prophesy. And that breathes life into each one of us, ready to fight for what's right and good. Going on in verse 11 of chapter 37. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you and ye shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it saith the Lord. I love that. It really captures the spirit of it. Now, in the spirit of restoration of those things that are lost, he continues. Take a look at verse 15. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it, for Judah and for the children of Israel his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it, for Joseph the stick of Ephraim and for all the house of Israel his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. When the twelve tribes of Israel were divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom was ruled by the tribe of Ephraim, and the southern kingdom was ruled by the tribe of Judah. When all of the Lord's people receive the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, they will be reunited. Exactly right. Note the stick in verse 16 refers to wooden writing tablets, which were in common use in Babylon in Ezekiel's day. Check the footnote. So these sticks represent the writings of Judah, the Bible, and the writings of Joseph, the Book of Mormon, which includes both the tribes of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Let's take a look from the Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi chapter 13, verse 40. And the angel spake unto me, saying, These last records, here he's referring to the Book of Mormon, which thou hast seen among the Gentiles, shall establish the truth of the first, which are of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, that's the Bible, and shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them, and shall make known to all kindreds, tongues, and people that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto him, or they cannot be saved." There's a great quote from the October 1982 General Conference from Elder Boyd K. Packer. He tells us, quote, The stick or record of Judah and the stick or record of Ephraim are now woven together in such a way that as you pour over one, you are drawn to the other, 
As you learn from one, you are enlightened by the other. With the passing of years, these scriptures will produce successive generations of faithful Christians who know the Lord Jesus Christ and are disposed to obey his will. The revelations will be open to them as to no other in the history of the world. Into their hands now are placed the sticks of Joseph and of Judah. They will develop a gospel scholarship beyond that which their forebearers could achieve. They will have the testimony that Jesus is the Christ and be competent to proclaim him and to defend him. End quote. Wonderful. I love that. Yeah. In the October 2006 General Conference, then-Elder Russell M. Nelson had this to say, quote, The Book of Mormon is central to this work. It declares the doctrine of the gathering. It causes people to learn about Jesus Christ, to believe his gospel, and to join his church. In fact, if there were no Book of Mormon, the promised gathering of Israel would not occur. Close quote. Hmm. Now, in the remaining verses of chapter 37, all the tribes of Israel will be united as one people. The reunited house of Israel will be led by one king, as it says in verse 22, and one shepherd, as it says in verse 24. This king and shepherd is Jehovah. The Lord promised he would renew his everlasting covenant, as it mentions in verse 26, and sanctify Israel as it says in verse 28. As then Elder Nelson said, the Book of Mormon plays an important role in the gathering of Israel. Right. Well, that brings us now to Ezekiel chapter 38. Let's start with verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, who is this Gog? The seminary manual offers this brief description. Gog was the king or chief prince of a land called Magog, located north of Jerusalem. Ezekiel used Gog symbolically to represent a wicked leader or leaders who would seek to destroy God's people in the last days. Right. In verses 4 through 6, Ezekiel prophesied that Gog would assemble a great army from many nations. So who would gather to Gog? Verse 5 identifies Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Ancient Persia was east of Jerusalem and is approximately modern-day Iran. Ancient Ethiopia was south of Jerusalem, and ancient Libya was west of Jerusalem. Ezekiel may have used these countries symbolically to illustrate that this army would come from many surrounding nations. The seminary manual tells us, After the army of Gog gathers against the mountains of Israel, their purpose will be to attack what they perceive to be the defenseless kingdom of Israel dwelling without walls. This prophecy refers to the great battle commonly referred to as the Battle of Armageddon, which will precede the second coming of Jesus Christ. Note, the battle at the end of the millennium described by John is also referred to as the Battle of Gog and Magog. The army of Gog symbolizes the great army that will attack Jerusalem. Good to know. Let's pick it up in verse 15. 
And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me, when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. This seems to be another opportunity the Lord will use to teach those who don't yet know him. That's the heathen. See how the Lord will show the world his power against the armies of Gog. Picking it up again in verse 18. And it shall come to pass, at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother, and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him, an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself. And I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. There's that running theme again. Now notice the mention of great hailstones in verse 22. If you check your footnote, you'll see that this great hailstorm of the last days was also seen by John the Revelator in Revelation 16 verse 21, and Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants, section 29, verse 16. Again, that consistency of this prophetic vision. And I love the emphasis again on the purpose for all of this. We sometimes get caught up in what's happening without remembering that the Lord has purpose, and it's ultimately to save as many as will be willing to be saved. Right. So that brings us to Ezekiel chapter 39, in this chapter, after most of the army of Gog is destroyed, it will take seven months for the house of Israel to bury the dead and seven years to clean up after the battle. Sometimes in the scriptures, writers use numbers to convey symbolic meaning beyond the literal understanding. Thus, the number seven may refer to a long time or to the land becoming complete or whole again. In chapters 40 through 43, we read that an angel guided Ezekiel through another vision pertaining to the last days. In it, he sees a temple and learns many details about it, including its form and size, with some very specific details. There the presence of God will be. The seminary manual reassures us that the temple Ezekiel saw is a temple that will be built in Jerusalem in the last days. That is very exciting, mm -hmm. especially the details we get. Let's move on to Ezekiel chapter 44. Let's start in verse 5. And the Lord said unto me, Son of man, mark well, and behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears 
all that I say unto thee concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord, and all the laws thereof, and mark well the entering in of the house, with every going forth of the sanctuary. These are instructions from the Lord to maintain the holy nature of the temple. That term, mark well, indicates that not everyone can enter the temple. Verses 6 through 8, the Lord condemns Israel for failing to maintain the sacredness of his holy house. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Thus saith the Lord God, No stranger, uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter into my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. Stranger, and the use of the term uncircumcised, refers to non-Israelites who had not made covenants to follow the Lord. Going forward up through chapter 46, the messenger shows Ezekiel how the priests were to prepare for and properly perform their duties in the temple. And that brings us to Ezekiel chapter 47. Here we read that Ezekiel was brought to the door of the temple where he saw in vision an event that the prophet Joseph Smith taught would occur before the Savior's second coming. This vision is also a symbolic representation of the blessings that come to all who live worthy to worship in the temple. Let's start with verse 1. Afterward he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house, at the south side of the altar. This water is intriguing. Remember that this is in vision, so we should be looking for the meaning of the symbols in the vision. Let's pay attention to what the waters do as they flow from the temple. Continuing in verse 3. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. And again he measured a thousand, and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. Again he measured a thousand, and brought me through. The waters were to the loins. Afterward he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over. For the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. Wow. The waters get deeper and deeper as he goes. In verses 6 and 7, the messenger brought Ezekiel to the bank of the river, where he noticed many trees along both sides of the river. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country, and go down into the desert, and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. So in vision, the sea Ezekiel saw was the Dead Sea, so named because of its inability to sustain animal or plant life. This water is isolated from any great sea or river. And so when it says that the waters coming from the temple will heal the Dead Sea, it means it will allow it to produce life. Let's pick it up in verse 9. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. So the sacred covenants of the temple 
are like the waters that heal and give life to those who keep those covenants, even where there was not life before. But compare that life with the miry places. These are places that are not connected to the living water of the river. They are stagnant and marshy. Pick it up in verse 11. But the miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. So don't disconnect yourself from the living water. Going forward, let's look at further descriptions of the life that comes from temple covenants. Verse 12, And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. Wow! Look at what these trees provide! Meat, which means food, and the leaves shall not fade, fruit, medicines, everything. Consider how the description of the trees on the banks of this river can be like individuals who experience the blessings of the temple. What fruits have you received as you have made covenants with the Lord in his holy house? Or what help have you provided to others who have gone to the temple? Right. Well, the remaining verses in Ezekiel through 47 and through 48, we find that Ezekiel heard the voice of the Lord and see how the promised land would be divided among the house of Israel. Ezekiel concluded his record by explaining what Jerusalem will be called after the Lord's second coming. That's in chapter 48, verse 35. According to the Joseph Smith translation of 4835, quote, the name of the city from that day shall be called holy, for the Lord shall be there. Very exciting. What an incredible set of books of prophecy. There's a lot in here, but I hope you saw the themes. There is purpose in what the Lord does. Yes, there is destruction, but it has a purpose. There are consequences with purpose. There is a gathering. There is another chance. There is a redemption. There are blessings to be poured out fruit and comfort and medicines and everything that the Lord can give us if we come to him. If we can be his people, he will be our God. Don't be discouraged if you don't understand all of the symbolism and all of the prophecy. There is much in the book of Ezekiel that has not been revealed to us. Correct. And so there is more to come that all of us will understand. In the meantime, try to grasp the main themes that we've talked about. And again, still in your reading, you're taking that time to tune to the Spirit of the Lord, and He will provide revelation to you about Ezekiel's writings and all aspects of your life. So it's important to keep reading and studying. So again, keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans.